Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, just a quick reminder that the Other People Podcast is a listener-supported endeavor. This show is entirely free. All episodes are free, almost 500 and counting. There's an official app, that is free. Everything's free, and so I count on the support of regular listeners in order to keep the train running. If you would like to throw a couple of bucks in the hat, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. You can also make a donation via PayPal if that works better for you. There is a link in the sidebar at the show's official website, otherppl.com. Thank you very much. Let's get started with the show. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Hey, everybody. How's it going? I'm Brad <laughs> right. Listy. This is the Other People Show. Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm in Los Angeles. I have Fiona Helmsley on my uh, program today. Fiona Helmsley has a new collection of essays out from uh, uh, an independent press called We Heard You Like Books. That collection of essays is entitled Girls Gone Old. Fiona Helmsley and I in just a moment. You can hear an airplane flying overhead. I've seen a couple skywriters in the last you know month or so. That sort of thing happens in Los Angeles. It's, it feels like it happens more often in the summer. But there was a, a couple of weekends in a row where Turkish Airlines blew their <laughs> blew their entire marketing budget, hired somebody to like write like Turkish Airlines or Turkish Air above uh, Los Angeles with a Skyrider, which. You know, as as far as skills go, like that's pretty impressive to be able to fly an airplane and spell and form with a uh, legible penmanship, a message on the atmosphere with uh, chemtrails or whatever they're called, jet wash. Skywriting. So I don't know what to tell you. I feel empty headed. I feel like I don't have much to offer. I feel like I don't have stories to tell. I go to work during the week. I get up. Here's my day. Do you want to know what my days look like? I get up early. 
I meditate for 20 to 30 minutes if it's a good day and like the, my schedule's working out. I then go exercise for about an hour somewhere. I come home, I eat something, I shower, I get dressed, and then I go to work. I ride my bike to work, <laughs> which, uh, you know, that's a defensible choice. In fact, I think it's a commendable choice to ride one's bicycle to work. But I feel a little strange because I'm the only person who does it. The bike that I ride is actually my wife's bike. It's a seafoam green. What is it called? A Bianca? Bianca? Like stretching. I forget what it is. It's a nice bike, but it's seafoam green, which is, uh, you know, I think a color selection that I would not make on my own. It's very distinct. But I've never really explained, uh, other than, you know, talking about the fact that I live a, bike, a bikeable distance from my, my job, never really explained to people my decision-making process. And so I'm concerned in a sl like somewhat neurotic way that everybody secretly thinks that like I have multiple DUIs or something, which I do not. And that they're spreading rumors about me. Maybe I should hire a skywriter to uh, explain my case. I wonder what the longest like skywritten message is in the history of skywriting. Word count. <laughs> Has anybody ever tried to like, you know, tell a story? What's the longest story ever told via skywriting? Maybe that's my medium. Maybe that's where I need to be focusing my energies. Maybe skywriting is my calling. It would be awesome. And I don't know how you, I mean, I'm sure you have to get permits to skywrite, right? You have to get a permit to do that over the, over a city in a crowded airspace, I would imagine. But it would be nice to have uh, ridiculous money to be a, like a billionaire or something and just hire a skywriter whenever you feel like it to say things like sort of like uh, Charlotte in Charlotte's Web. It's like the upper atmosphere as your uh, Twitter. Entire metropolitan areas hanging on your every word. Though I have seen skywriting. And by the way, I don't know why I'm telling you <laughs> so much about my feelings on skywriting, but I do feel like the quality of skywriting differs from skywriter to skywriter. Sometimes you'll see the airplane trying to do its thing and uh, it's, it's truly not happening. The penmanship is bad the jet wash or whatever you want to call it. It's, it's uh, dissipating too quickly. It's hard to make out what's being said. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. 
Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So, anyway, my guest today is Fiona Helmsley. I had a great time talking with her. And uh, just to record trauma, the trauma of doing this podcast, Fiona is, I believe, the second consecutive guest I've had where I've had technical difficulties and have had to uh, record a second time. Happened with Scott McClanahan. Oh, it's the second time in three weeks because CL Jew, I think, last week went fine. I'm still rattled. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice. But she was a delightful guest and very kind to talk with me for a very long time to deliver a program of acceptable quality to uh, you, my listeners. So here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Fiona Helmsley, and her essay collection, once again, is called Girls Gone Old. Well, if I had to choose, like, when I was younger, and I liked Guns N' Roses in seventh grade... Like I can remember when we could buy when that when the Lies album came out, and I can remember going buying and buying that at like Record Town, and it's like you know the, the way it was like all newsprint. Like I used to love her, but I had to kill her. It was made to look like a tabloid. Um, but if I had to choose the member of Guns N' Roses that I most liked then, though of course I liked Axel, I liked Steve Adler, who what? went on to sad things, as we all, as we all know. Um, you know, I think I had a thing for drummers. You know, I had liked Mickey Dolan's of the Monkees. Um, I don't know. I Maybe he seemed the most accessible to me <laughs> because he didn't get that much attention. But, I, you know, of course, I loved Axel. He could dance like a maniac and he wore like those tight leather pants. And But in the book, it's really about, um, you know, that stanza from It's So Easy. Um, in the book, Guns N' Roses comes into it because there's that song, It's So Easy, and there's that little stanza in it that says, you know, you get nothing for nothing if that's what you do. Turn around, bitch, I got a useful you. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, that stanza in the book um, did a lot for me. Why? Because <laughs> I wanted, I wanted to, Axel to have a use for me. You know, it was, it was that whole thing of, you know, I had said to you before about how I would write in my journal, me and my friend are going to pretend to be drunk and hang all over these guys. Um, You know, in that stanza, Axel's saying, you know, you don't need to pretend. (laughs) You don't need to pretend to be drunk. You know, I'm, I'm here to, and I want to have my way with you. Um, So I thought it was, you know, it was a a nice invitation, even though I mean, (laughs) Now it's so sleazy and misogynist. I mean, then it was too. Um, you know, now I'm much more aware of that. But at the time, with like you know my shame-filled, ide- you know, uh, thoughts about 
sex and women wanting sex or being sexually interested, um, you know, that stanza gave me hope. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting because it's like, it's like the opposite of what one would think a woman would derive from that stanza. But But, I mean, I was 13 years old. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. Did you ever see Guns N' Roses in concert? No, but I had tickets to them like twice and both times like Axel had some problem. Um, my friend Jarrett saw them fairly recently. He's a big Guns N' Roses fan. I love he said Guns N' Roses. I fucking love Guns N' Roses. Like when I, because we, you know, we're roughly the same age, and uh, you say seventh grade. Like one of my few really distinct childhood memories, because I have a terrible memory, is being on the bus with a one of those like yellow Walkman. You remember the Walkmans from back in the day? Those like yellow like Sony Sport Walkmans or whatever, and. <laughs> Having uh, Appetite for Destruction on cassette tape, that I, right. I would listen to that every day, you know, and it, there was something in it that I guess everybody sensed or felt, or most of us who were into Guns N' Roses, uh, you know, it, it was just, uh, it was different, or it was, uh, like, there was something very serious about Guns N' Roses. Uh, like, they, like they, well, meant, I, they meant business. <laughs> right. Well, and I think for our age, too, um, you know, they were they were really obvious and we could see about the fact that, you know, they, they live this kind of lifestyle, you know, the dancing with Mr. Brownstone and you find out Mr. Brownstone means heroin, um, you know, and the girls with the big hair and the tight clothes. I mean, it was, you know, obvious to us what was going on. Um, but I can, you said the thing about the listening to your Walkman, listening to, to them on the, your Walkman. I can remember my sister and I, stealing my father's tape recorder this is a tape recorder not like a boom box and you know the kids would bring like their boom boxes on the bus and my sister and i being in the back like my father's tape recorder <laughs> like listening to michael jackson um and just getting made fun of i mean we thought we were cool we had we, you know we had tunes too but you know we had a tape recorder and yeah I, I, I gotta say like this is i have <laughs> conflicted feelings about how much i love michael jackson's music and i guess you you have to divorce the the art from the life of the artist or whatever, but I still... But who knows now? I mean, who knows if that was true about Michael Jackson? Really? I mean, at the time, yeah, all signs pointed to that. But who knows? He was so weird. And when you're that weird, you don't get a lot of leeway. When you're that weird, usually people come for you. You know? Usually society doesn't let somebody go on being that weird without trying to really knock them down. And this isn't to say he didn't put himself in a position um, where he was very easy to knock down. But who knows? Has there been a definitive Michael Jackson biography? Because I've had this thought in the past and, you know, that if anybody embodies the entire scope of how the, hard it is to be human. Well, that and also like the American fame machine, you know, because yeah. it, like not only did he have, you know, mega fame, but he, he had it from the time he was a kid, you know, like his entire his entire life was spent under the microscope. And you saw, I guess, the American public and the world public got to see his evolution from childhood all the way until the end of his life. And it just it went to such extremes, you know, and. That's a hell of a story. If anyone could ever really get inside that world and get get the actual real truth of it, I, I bet it would be an unbelievable read and maybe like a, a difficult read. Right. Um, and I'm not an Aaron Carter fan. I don't even I never listened to one of his songs. He's a 
the brother of a Backstreet Boy. Um, but he was just arrested recently for a DUI, and it got a little bit of attention. But afterward, I guess like on his Twitter feed, he put up this painting or picture that supposedly Michael Jackson had drawn for him saying like, you know, don't judge me until you've lived my childhood. Um, you know, Aaron Carter was sort of trying to, you know, say that because he had been in music for, you know, since he was young, that, um, you know, it was like a Michael Jackson kind of situation. How did, how did Justin Timberlake get out of the boy band thing so well adjusted? I feel like that's got to fuck you up to be a, you know, just being in a boy band and part of that, uh, like that, wasn't that there that, that weird dude who like was the consigliere? Yeah. That's like saying, yeah. he, and he I was like, I remember that guy's name and he was total pedophile. And it was also like a grifter is probably stealing money from them. Like just a terrible situation. Well, he would, they would like take them from their parents and move them to Orlando. I think he had like a hand in Nick Carter. I mean, um, Aaron Carter, the one who I just mentioned before too. I think he had something to do with that. Um, I don't know from what I know of Justin, I don't know how I know all this stuff about like these people who I don't really listen to. I guess just an interest in pop culture, but I think that, um, Justin Timberlake always had, um, his mother was always really involved in just the transition how he was able to make the transition from NSYNC to having like all those hit albums, I think is just having good, uh, good songwriters, yeah. you know? Well, and he's a good looking guy. Like my, my wife, I guess like she, she told me that like she and her friends, you know, back in the day were like gaming out like which he was in the Backstreet Boys, right? Is that right? Justin Timberlake? Or what was he? No, in? NSYNC. NSYNC. Yeah. They were like gaming out like which of the NSYNC boys was going to be the biggest star. And like they all picked, I guess they all picked Justin or like they all had him pegged. And um, I don't know. He was the front man too. So he would be the logical. Oh, he was. Okay. Yeah. I, I thought. Well, that... I mean, I guess they were all kind of, you know, equal sort of, but he was, I think he sang more. All right. And he had Britney Spears. I mean, then he had the relationship with Britney Spears that, you know, put him more into the front, too. And they both wore like those. Have you ever seen those pictures where they're both wearing like these denim suits? Yes. Yes. Yeah. He's got the denim dress and he's got the the denim pants and the denim hat. He's truly talented. I saw him uh, in concert once. He's very gifted. He can dance. He can sing. He can play instrument. You know, he's he's got the he's got the gift. Yeah, and I saw I, mean, I, was, I saw uh, his wife. Uh, what's her name? Alba. No, not Jessica Alba. Jessica. Um, God damn it! I'm I'm blanking. Justin Timberlake's wife. Yeah. Oh, you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. The one who was on Seventh Heaven, Jessica Beale. Jessica Beale. She's she is uh, like just like shockingly beautiful uh, in person. Um, I don't know. Like it was one of those, like I, I don't usually like freeze in my tracks, but like it was that kind of thing where you're like, whoa, like that's a different kind of human. <laughs> right. Like superhuman. Yes. Like superhuman beauty. That's what I would say. Well, I hope he treats her well. I think he yeah. does. I mean, I don't know. Who knows? Who knows what goes on behind closed doors at the Timberlake house? So are you, have you always been like, are you somebody who consumes incredible amounts of culture? Like, are you a person who like has a million shows on their DVR and sees every movie that comes out in the theater? No, not, not at all. Um, I'm like very wary of doing series, any kind of net series, because it's such a commitment. Um, <clears throat> usually it's like a rewarding commitment, but, um, you know, when you get sucked into those things, you lose some time. So I'm like waiting until I get older. Like I would never watch Downton Abbey or, um, you know, like a lot of the shows and Downton Abbey's a few years ago, but, um, no, 
uh-uh. I don't see a lot of popular movies. Last time I went to a movie theater, I don't, I can't even remember. I do watch a lot. I watch a lot of older films. I love movies from like the 30s and the 40s. Um, I, I watch a, a lot. Why? I, I just think the storylines are better. I love the actors and the actresses. I really just, I just had a big, um, I just went through a big Joan Crawford phase, um, watching a lot of her old movies. And I just like the acting style then. Like people would probably say it's dramatic, it's overly dramatic now or, um, you know, uh, I mean, it's, it's definitely changed. It's not as natural, or, um, but I like that. I like the glamour. I mean, there was a definite glamour from uh, movies from that period. And it's interesting reading like the history of them too. Um, and it's interesting about reading about like the Hayes Act in Hollywood when, you know, the mor- mor- morality cla- clauses were put into films and there were certain things you couldn't, you couldn't do and you could, um, which didn't stop until 1968. Uh, but just the, the people I think then were um, much more interesting. I mean, you had a lot of people who came from really poor backgrounds, like, um, you know, really rising above their birth circumstances. To, I mean, Hollywood was really the dream machine. Yeah. I mean, you could go there. I mean, Joan Crawford um, was Lucille Lesur, um, who grew up in Texas and, like, was a washerwoman, um, you know, never went to school and uh, had been a dancer um, and just went out to Hollywood. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, it seems the casting couch played a big part. Um but just a woman who is so totally driven. Um, and it's unfortunate now. And I think Ryan Murphy, who did uh, Betty and Joan, which I did watch on FX, um, The Divine Feud. It was a show. Yeah. I don't know if you saw it. I, I, I'm um, aware of it. I didn't see it. Right. I mean, to people of our generation, Joan Crawford is just known as Mommy Dearest. You know, this woman who, who beat her, maybe beat her, her, you know, her children. Um, but I think he's done a real service. Um you know, getting people to remember that there was more to her than that. With Betty Davis, too. Well, she had, Joan Crawford was the uh, the very first star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Oh, I didn't know that. I think I, I, think I just read that recently. I think she was the first person to get a star. I, I know what she wrote, though. Um, she When she put her hands in, she said, I hope this cements, ha-ha, a great friendship. But I didn't know <laughs> it was the first. I feel like, too, because like I, I, I studied film in college, and I, I like old movies, too, and I think one of the things I like so much about them is this lens they give into uh, like historical periods, like d- different historical periods. Like I like seeing what New York City looked like in the 70s or in the 50s. Yeah. Or, you know, and what I find, though, and I don't know if this is a function of having lived through it myself, is that the differences, the aesthetic differences of the way places and people looked and acted, seem, it seems time seems to have compressed itself or something. There doesn't seem to be that much of a difference in the way uh, cinema and television looks from like the 80s or the 90s to today. It doesn't seem like the changes are as drastic. But man, when I watch a movie from like the 50s right. or the 60s, you, know, you watch like The Apartment, like it just seems like a different world. Right. I mean, it does. It just, it just, and granted, most of the movies you're seeing people of a degree of privilege, but just the time people put in putting themselves together, like the women's hairdos, some of them are so elaborate. And I mean, that's why they haven't lasted through the years because you had to put so much time into them. Um, And just, you know, men wearing hats all the time and women wearing hats all the time. Um, 
yeah. No, I, I, I love it. I really, um, I've become kind of obsessed. Do you, do you, do you wish, like, is it kind of a thing where you're like wishing for a better, like you're idealizing a pastime that you can never go back to that was better than the one that we're living in now? No, I, I think I just, I like the writing of the movies better. I like the way people talk to each other, like, um, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren McCall and to have and to have not. Um, I, I like the way they talk to each other. Um, just the writing was, I, I think the, I mean, and you think about what's popular in movies now, big explosions, um, you know, the, the, the sex, sexual elements. Um, a lot of the movie stars tend to look the same. Um, and you also know, um, you know, most, most movie stars get like five years. You get five years to make a bunch of movies. And if you don't make a, a lot of money, you're out of there. Um, and they all look alike. Um, and then there was just much more diversity in um, the actors and actresses. The storylines were deeper um, and better. Uh, and also, they, they tended the, the people themselves tend to have these really interesting backstories. Um, like I've fallen in love with Leslie Howard, who uh, was a, who played Ashley in Gone with the Wind. I've actually never seen Gone with the Wind. Um, I haven't either. But, uh, I've tried. I've tried to take it out of the library, but I think it might be missing. Like, it's long overdue. Um, so whoever has it probably isn't returning it. But he was in a bunch of movies in the 30s and 40s, and he uh, ended up doing uh, uh, propaganda, war propaganda, propaganda for... Um, he was English. And he was um, shot down in a plane by the Nazis um, and died. So... Um, you know, people seem to have forgotten about him a little bit, but I love him. Um, he was the original uh, uh, Henry Higgins, um, which became My Fair Lady. He uh, did a version called Pygmalion, and he, he's just excellent. All the characters he plays, he's like this bumbling intellectual, um, and I love him. Like uh, my obsession with Joan Crawford, I have a, I ordered this photograph that somebody hand painted, so I have Joan Crawford on my wall. I have a movie poster um, from Suddenly Last Summer, which was a tennis, something Tennessee Williams wrote with Elizabeth Taylor, Catherine Hepburn, and Montgomery Clift. I'm just turning into a gay man. Like, I, <laughs> I was going to say. Like, I mean, that's, but you like the movies of the studio. Like, that's the old studio system, right? When, like, yeah. the studios, like, owned actors, basically. And uh, it was, a, like, a, a much more... Um, What's that? I guess top down, or I guess it still is top down. But there's a lot of power. There's a lot of unitary executive power in the movie business back in those days, right? Right. Um, you know, the, the the studios had their presidents. Um, in that movie, that there's the book, uh, "What Makes Sammy Run," by Bud Schilberg, who wrote "On the Waterfront," um, goes into a lot of that, the studio system, and and uh, what it started to get um, when unions came in and. It's just, it's a really great book. I'll have to read it because I'd be interested. Like I have, I have some experience like making the rounds in uh, Hollywood and I don't know, it, it doesn't feel, it feels a far distance from any kind of classic Hollywood. It all feels so cheap and stupid to me in, in so many right. respects, but maybe that's the way it always felt. I mean, maybe that's the way Bud Schulberg felt and, uh, right. you know, all but I, think, I think in those early days of film, to people, I mean, it was so ma magical. Even some of these, um, that I'm reading a Curtis um, Harrington bio biography. He talks about going to the movies in L.A. when he was a, when he was a kid, and it was just magic. In the early days of film, it, to go to a movie and to see something big on a screen was 
You know, I mean, there weren't that many other entertainments available to people, yeah, especially you, ones that were semi-affordable. You take it for granted. Yeah, I don't even I don't even really go. There's not much that really grabs me. I'll go with like my son if there's some like the Lego movie. That was probably the last movie that I saw. Right. It's yeah. so expensive. So I'm going to go see Dunkirk. Uh, I don't even think I've read about that. It's like a war movie. It's by Christopher Nolan. Yeah, I, I don't. I have a really hard time with violence too. That's another thing that I love about these older movies. I have a really hard time with violence. Um, was never that way when I was younger. I loved horror movies, but and I have a hard time with suspense too. Like I live on Wikipedia when I'm watching a movie. Like I need to know like what's going to happen. I just I can't handle violence, and I have a really hard time with suspense. What do you What do you attribute it to? I don't. I don't know. And probably empathy. Even though these are characters, um, I just, I, I, I guess I get too caught up in what's going to happen to these people. I don't know. I don't uh, like, I don't like, I'm not a huge fan of the violence either. And in ways that never used to bother me, but it's gotten worse for me. I, I always attribute it to like, when I became a parent, maybe I got more sensitive or something, but, um, I'll go see Dunkirk just cause it's been reviewed well. And a buddy of mine got tickets and was like, you know, I kind of got invited to go, but, uh, right. I don't know. I, I, I like when movies have really like graphic violence, um, like realistic violence. It, it, I don't know. It can make it hard for me to get to sleep. I just have a hard time. I can't sit through it. I mean, like I said, when I was young, maybe it has to do with my child too. But he can watch it. Um, but when I was when I was younger, I had problem with it but now i definitely do i mean there's like whole i told blocks of films that i know that i just you know i, I can't see I, can't, I won't be able to handle them so when did let's talk about your writing life uh like when did you become serious i know you always wanted to do it but then you had this period from your teenage years through your 20s where you were uh doing a lot of heroin and doing sex work and then you came out of that in your what early 30s late 20s it was 29 when i got pregnant okay so 29 that sort of marks a shift and and then is that when you started to write in earnest well when i was younger i had done like uh, i had done a little bit of writing for zines um when i was in school even though i did not do well in school and this is high school I always had really supportive teachers like I was really lucky in that regard that I was like a troubled kid who teachers still like reached out to and tried to encourage um and the first teacher who I had that encouraged my writing that was in seventh grade and I wrote a poem about suicide um it was like heavy metal lyrics almost but now it wasn't it was like more visual and uh but he was really supportive of that. He was like, this is great. Um, you know, you should really write more. And he put it in the school magazine. Um, and it was like the first time I had somebody really tell me I was good at something. Um, so I wrote more. You know, some of it was especially like sort of for him because it was this person who had given me this great compliment. And I wa- didn't want to let him down, I guess. And I also wanted to see what else I could do with it. Um, So that was the first time that somebody had told me that maybe I would have some talent with this. And my sister had written, too. Um, 
my sister was the first the person in our family who was first known as a writer. Um, she'd she'd won some contests. Um, so my sister, so these teachers had had her too. So maybe they had recognized that in her and thought maybe I had had it too. Maybe that was part of it. Um, but then when I got to high school, um, I had other always English teachers who were really great and really encouraging. Um, but I didn't really do anything more with it though. I, while I was in high school, I was known as a writer, um, a troubled writer, uh, a it's, troubled the, it's the best kind, right? A Charles Manson t-shirt <laughs> who was, um, you know, a writer, you know, school, you know, that small school world. Um, but then I had done some writing for zines. I did a few of my own zines. Um, but then later on, after I'd had my son, I was on live journal for a while and I'd always kept notebooks when I was a kid. I always had diary notebooks, tons of them. I probably have about 40 you know, going back to when I was like eight. Um, so live journal was kind of like doing that, but doing it online. So my son would be, I don't know, in the pack and play or whatever. And I would be on live journal. Um, no, I mean, I liked the interaction of other people being able to read it, but it was just, it was more of a continuation of what I'd done with those notebooks. But I met some people there and um, I, I met a woman met meeting online, you know, not in person that we did meet later, who was very encouraging. And um, she had told me then, you know, you should submit some of this stuff. And she like gave me a link to like media bistro or something. And, uh, you know, and they would have the names of magazines who were looking for writing. And I think I tried to submit a few things to places like that. And of course, I submitted things to the New Yorker, because you, you have no idea of your place in this pecking order, you know, and well, why not go for the, for the big guns? Um, you know, like the Paris review and just totally ridiculous. Um, but once I got a letter back and it didn't seem like a form letter, um, was it Patrick Muldoon? I can't even remember an Irish guy who was the poetry editor at the New Yorker. And it didn't seem like it was a form letter. It seemed like it was an actual, response from him and I knew forum responses you know thank you we appreciate your and this wasn't that and he said you know um this is you know this is really good we won't be able to publish it but but I mean still that was like encouraging I mean who knows maybe it was it wasn't really from him it was an intern maybe maybe but it seemed different from the other responses um so then I started writing for this website that Tony DeShane, who wrote this book called Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk. Sure, yeah. Um, I said he had a website, and I wrote a few stories for that. Um, and then I became friends with a woman, a writer, who lived out in California. And her and I attempted to do an anthology together. And that was a pretty funny story, how we met um, Certain, a lot, or I can't say anymore how many, but for women who write about drugs and are kind of punky and um, like that, a lot of women like that, like myself, seem to kind of, in some way, I don't know how it happens, become connected to like Jerry Stahl. Like you mean personally or like, and you actually have relations um, with me? I, I, I don't know how it happens, but a lot of women have 
this story about Jerry Stahl. Um, maybe it's, you know, we, uh, I mean, his book, Permanent Midnight, was so funny. And, and I can see in my early writing, it's kind of embarrassing, but how much he, his style influenced mine. Like, he would write things like, you know, I slimed into the room. <laughs> Or like I skeeved my way to you know across the dance floor. You know he put O's on the end of things, like for adjectives, like slimed and skeeved, and to describe himself. You know what, what he was doing. Um, and so we attempted to do this anthology, and all of the all of the women in it were had some connection to him, which, which is kind of bizarre. And draw your own conclusions. Um, but was it was it because was it because like, just so I can be clear on this is it because you reached out to him or he reached out to you? I had emailed him. Okay. Um, I had emailed him and he was accessible. You know, he would write back. Um, and it just seemed like all of the women in this. But that's how I got to know the woman who I started to do the anthology with. She had seen something like I'd written on his MySpace page. Um, and so we attempted to do this anthology, and that was the first time I really connected with other writers. These were mostly people out in California, um, like people around Bur- beyond Baroque. I don't know if you know that. Yeah, yeah. Venue. Over it's in Venice. Dark. Right. Um, so we did this anthology, and it took so long to do the whole thing. And when it finally came out, it really wasn't edited that well, and that was kind of a disappointment. It could have been a great book. It just needed you know, somebody to edit it better. Um, I think it just took so long that when the woman finally put it out, she just didn't care anymore. Um, but then after that, I just, I, you know, I started submitting my writing more places. Um, I had a point where I wanted to write something every month. Like it was a little, a little like silly goal I had for myself. Like every month I wanted to have an essay. Um, and I, you know, started submitting places and then I got, you know, some acceptances, a lot of rejections, of course. Um, and when you write about the things that I write about, you end up, you know, if you write about sex or you write about sex work, you know, you end up, you know, you, they're, they're, that kind of writing is, you know, I never th- I've never thought of my writing as erotica, but I had somebody reject something I'd written saying we don't do erotica. I mean, there's there's just not a lot of wiggle room with that you end up sort of like you know in a ghetto you end up like in the sex work ghetto or you end of a writing ghetto or you know the the drug ghetto um it's and i didn't want to be you know and sex work comes up in my stories but it's not always it's usually something in the background um there's usually other things going on um so I didn't feel like I really fit in there either. Um, so sometimes it's been hard to place my writing, but I, it's gotten easier. Um, you know, I've found places that have, you know, tend to be a little bit more open-minded and supportive. But it was a process. I mean, for a while I sent writing places that it obviously didn't belong. And in retrospect, it's kind of mortifying. I guess that, that sex work story probably didn't <laughs> fit in the pages of The New Yorker after all. Yeah, yeah, things like that. I thought I really had a, a chance, though, with the New York Times was doing um, doing little short essays on, um, on on drug addiction. And I sent them this one about, you know, getting a very intimate piercing. And, you know, I mean, it had to do with heroin. It was a good story. What do you mean you had to do it with heroin? 
Um, well, they were doing they were doing like this series on on drug stories, short drug stories, and I sent them sent them one that I thought was really good. It was about getting like a very intimate piercing. What does that mean? But, but, like a, a piercing in like your genital area. Okay. Um, but it you know and then heroin played into it. But I, obviously that's not what they were looking for. <laughs> I'd read that. Uh, yeah. What about what, what, what about writing about sex? Like, because you know they they have that annual award for like bad sex writing in fiction or whatever, and it's a it's a it's like really funny to read actually when you read really terrible sex writing by very accomplished authors. You know, it'll be like the the uh, Ian McEwens or Philip Roths of the world, or you know these kind of grand old men of letters trying to write about people having mm-hmm. sex, and it just comes right. it it's comes over. Awkward. Yeah, That's yeah. Awkward. But some people are really good at it. Like why? What what do you think makes for good sex writing? Well, you first off you have to stay away from the adjectives. Like you have to stay away from like you know, throbbing manhood and and um and you know, you just have to there has to be some nuance there. Um I don't I I can just think of like what makes bad writing about that. Um, you know, and not, not too like purpley. I mean, that happens. You really get like the, the, the purpley, um, writing about sex. I think when men do it, it's good if they're just brief and then, you know, move on to something else, make it very obvious that that's what happened. And then, uh, you know, next scene, that's that's what I recommend. But with women, with women, it should be longer. Well, I just think women just are, are better at it. They're more nuance they're i don't know maybe men have something more to prove or or maybe just the awkwardness of of you know what they're trying to attempt comes through you know that or that it's that it's awkward for them philip roth it's funny he's usually you know and usually that he's you know so neurotic is you know part of whatever he's writing to begin with so it's funny but um with men, it's just, you know, and they, they talk about like wetness. <laughs> and, and it's just poor men. You know, we have no idea yeah. what the hell's going on. And, and, you know, it's funny too. Cause, uh, I've often made this argument to my wife or to women that I've known over the years where I'm like, you know, the, I'm not trying to say that, that women have it better than men. I, I think that would be the opposite of the truth, but when it comes to sex, right. Uh, the, the, the woman is often put in the position of being like the, like the performance evaluator. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, like there's a lot of pressure on guys. I feel like to, to do it right and to be good and women get to like sort of evaluate whether or not that happened. I guess maybe women feel the same way in reverse, but it seems like, like the, the popular concept of it is that like. You have sex, and then the women sort of evaluate whether or not it was any good. No, I think that, but I think that that's just, but with that's the role you guys think you're supposed to perform. Okay. Like I think that's just been, you know, society, film, movies, life, conversations with other men who have had that put into their heads. You know, um, I think that's like cultural indoctrination. But it's know? not. But it's not true, in practice. I would expect that from anyone i mean i I go into every encounter with with most people with not a lot of expectation i just i would like to have a good time if if knowing the person was feeling such intense pressure 
I mean, that would that would ruin that would absolutely ruin it for me. So let's talk about. I want to. I have a question about sex and sex work and how the two might inform one another. Uh, specifically, like how like doing sex work, which. Um, you know, you, uh, what it was like kind of S and M dominatrixy stuff plus like some hand jobs. So that's basically the, does that encapsulate it? No. <laughs> no? no. <laughs> what is no. it? Give, give me like a, a brief over, a brief overview of your work, <laughs> uh, as a sex worker. Well, I had started with the fantasy role play. Okay. And that went on for a few years. Um, and I'd met somebody there who had worked as an escort and she took me along. Um, and that was, that was what I ended up doing for a few years. So you were an escort. I was. Yes. Oh, okay. So, um, how does that, cause I've, I've read and heard that women who work in the sex industry, whether it's in like porn or whether it's, uh, you know, strip clubs or whatever, they have these like very hypersexualized professional existences because that's the work that they're doing, but that I, it can have like a, um, a negative effect on their ability to be intimate in their personal lives. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's not the no. case. Like, did it, like, no. I guess the question that I'm driving at or that I'm curious about is that when you're doing this work day in and day out, you're having mm-hmm. more sex, I think, by a good measure than the average person. You're having more access right. to, like, Absolutely. people's sexuality and the act of sex and all that kind of stuff. Like, you're immersed in it every day as a function of your job. So right. did you learn about it? Did it, it have any positive impact on your... Uh, well, I... I know that I can, I'm very good one-on-one with people. I mean, I know I would meet people who are so totally different from me. And, um, you know, I, I know that I'm, I can be good if I have, this is my goal of making people feel comfortable. Um, I know that I, I also have very good intuition when it comes to people. And I really think this is a funny thing to say. But I think that I learned this from when I was younger, having, like, so many bitchy girlfriends. Like, because when you have bitchy girlfriends and, like, your social standing can change day to day, which was very much like when I was a young girl in seventh and eighth grade when I was, like, obsessed with popularity and things like that. You know, it's like, um, what what is the reality show that was like, um, oh, it's Project One, Project One Runway. You know, you're in or you're out. Was that Project Runway? I saw something like that. But whatever. Um but it was very much uh, like that with my relationships with my girlfriends then. I mean, one week they weren't your friend, the next you, you were, they were. So there were a lot of mind games. And later on, surprisingly, I think that this gave me, having to navigate them, intuition when it came to clients and, uh, and, and just people, people and like their motivations or when things were starting to get weird. Um, so I was always very good. I would have friends who would end up in bad situations. And uh, I was lucky that that never happened to me. I was going to say, like, you didn't have... Because I mean, that seems like it's a pretty dangerous line of work to be in. And uh, did you notice any commonalities in terms of clientele? Like, the kinds of guys who would hire escorts or do... You know what I'm saying? Like, was it... Did you see a lot of the same people or was it always a different situation? Well, a lot of it, a lot of it was drug related. 
I mean, you would have men who would be doing coke, and you know, you would get there and they couldn't even get it up. Um, they, they it was just, just that they were, you know, the coke makes them really horny. Um, a lot of because this was New York, um, a lot of Indian men. Um, there would be um, uh, a lot of Hasidic Jews, which would be funny because it would be like, I, I don't know if it's the Sabbath or what, but they're not supposed to touch the money. I remember going to see this one guy. He wasn't supposed to, t- he couldn't touch the money, but of course he could have me there. He could have me there. And so he's like lifting up the mattress because he couldn't touch the money, like showing me where it was. Um, so, you know, I really had an, uh, an, ent- an entree into the, you know, New York immigrant community. Um, you know, young guys, um, you know, and then you would get, you know, a bunch of assholes, um, like hanging out together, um, you know, who would want to have a girl come over and just would just be total douchebags. Um, but I wasn't, I was kind of like a, a grumpy escort, <laughs> I, I guess. That's a I, good, that's a good title, by the way, the grumpy escort. I, I wasn't, um, you know, there's ways to do it to, 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 you know, to make it more financially viable. Um, I didn't really do those things. Um, what do you mean? Because I, I, I think with me, though, though I had had the interest in sex work because, you know, I'd come out of, you know, the, the I'd come out of like that world of like Riot Girl when, um, you, you know, that was that was something that was really embraced. You had like, um, you know, singers and bands like Kathleen Hanna, um, had been a dancer. Courtney Love was a dancer. Um, you know, I, for me, there was this idea of like, uh, what I was doing was feminist and empowering, but I was also doing it for money for drugs. So it, it wasn't, there were ways I could do it. I could have done it better if I wanted to turn it into like an enterprise or like a real uh, occupation, you know, I, and that probably would have been to be a bit nicer <laughs> to people. <laughs> better customer service. <laughs> right. But you can make a lot. I mean, did you make a lot of money? I, I did, but it was never like, I mean, my rent was still never paid. Um, you know, I still lived very, uh, you know, take out all the time. And and that was because of drugs. You know, um, I was young. I mean, it was just the the confluence of all these things, young and not being able to take care of yourself to begin with. Um, You know, young and doing drugs. Um, You know, this was like my first apartment. Um, And I had a great deal for New York City. I had this, it was Brooklyn. I had this beautiful, not beautiful, but it was big apartment um you know 650 dollars a month uh which was unheard of um and i i I just i had no sense of responsibility um if you can be responsible having that kind of lifestyle i mean i i guess what it comes down to was like i was a hot mess i was a hot mess for you know three three years do you spend a lot of time in regret like do you regret that time or do you this is this is probably going to sound sound cold but um the apartment that i lived in the people who owned the building were my sister's godparents and um you know if i had 
been a better tenant, worked on that the relationship with them. They had no children. I mean, they both died a few years ago. That house could have been mine. Right. <laughs> you know? I mean, I, yes, I have other regrets, too. You have you have Brooklyn real estate regrets. Right. right. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think of my friends, like, okay, I so said you can think of my life in terms of these books. Sweet Valley High. There was the Sweet Valley High period. Right before that, I'd had a good friend. And we had been, we, she lived across the street from me. And we had, I dream about this girl. Still do. And we had been best friends. I mean, like a real best friendship. Um, she knew everything about me. I knew everything about her. And then in order to become popular, to be in with the popular people, um, I wrote her this note, like ending our friendship, which is it was so horrible. It was such a horrible thing to do. I mean, I was 13 years old. Um, just such a horrible, horrible thing to do. And so we continued through school together, never talking to each other. But I know now, knowing what I know about her now, thanks to Facebook and all that, um, she's a lawyer. Um, you know, she's done very well for herself. So, so sometimes I think, like, if I had made different decisions, like if I hadn't been so influenced by Sweet Valley High and wanting to be popular, um, who's to say what the trajectory of my life would have been? You know, the person who was my best friend's a lawyer. I mean, who's to say what I would have done otherwise? Yeah. It's weird when you start to look back on your life and all the little micro choices that you've made and like, it can be mad. It can be a maddening thought project. Right. Yeah. And I feel like, I feel like that sometimes like I look at people that I know and there aren't that many of them and, and this is why they're exceptional, but like you have these people where it's like, man, like life just turned out for these people. Like, it seems like they make every right move or every move they make, like the door swings open or things just, you know, n- not that there aren't difficulties cause you know, this right. is, this is life, but I'm always fascinated by that. Like, is that just, is that fate or is that really like be- a consequence of like their conscious choice and they just, they just did life better. You know what I'm saying? Well, I think for some people, and I see this in my son and I hope he sticks with it. Um, when I was younger, I didn't think that education was so important. I thought it was great. I thought, you know, I wanted to be educated, but I still thought I'd be able to like bend the world to, you know, for me to find my place in it. I, I still thought that if I didn't do things the typical way that I would still be able to find some, some success or financial security later in the future i didn't necessarily believe that you did well in school because when it you know came to graduation then you got into a good great college um i didn't see the importance of like uh, proving my intellect um to to teachers and um you know i didn't see uh how it's all part of it's all part of you know making a good life for yourself i just i didn't believe it I guess, you know, in my friend to juxtapose that with my friend. I mean, when she went to school after, you know, continuing school after we stopped being friends, I mean, she did her schoolwork. She, you know, did the typical path to, to, you know, success in life while I was out with my friends partying and, and this and that. So maybe if I hadn't, you know, written her off as a friend, I would have 
continued on that path doing well in school and you know the way you're supposed to do it but why do you think why do you think you didn't see the importance of education and believed that whatever the adults in your i'm sure there were adults in your life telling you that education was important correct yeah oh absolutely but you didn't believe them like it or you thought you knew better like is that a function of just like your dna and personality or do you think it's a function of something else, like some experiences uh, in life that you had? Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Like, is it nature or nurture? I, I, I just don't know. I, I guess I, I just believed I'd be able to pull it off. I mean, there's a part of me that still believes I'll be able to pull it off. Um, like, I don't drive. And there's a part of me that, that thinks, well, it's okay because eventually I'll be able to afford a driver. And where does that come from? You know, nothing has happened in my life so far to tell me that I should, you know, think that that might happen. I don't know. Maybe it's an internal optimism. Um, I don't know. How about just delusion? <laughs> Could well, be. Um, and why don't you drive? Why you just don't like to drive, or did you did you have DUIs or something? No, I've never had my license. Um, when I lived in New York, I didn't need it. When I was young, like when I was sixteen, I attempted to get it. Um, I had a boyfriend, so I just never took the test. Um, then I had another boyfriend. Um, and when I moved to New York, I didn't need it. Then I lived in New London. I didn't need it there. And then when it came time where I did need it, suddenly I had like this great fear of the road and I still try, like I'm, I'm taking driving lessons right now, but it just does not feel natural to me. I'm like, always totally aware that like I'm in a killing machine surrounded by other killing machines and you can't, you can't drive like that. Um, so how do you get around? What do you, how do you get around? What do you, how do you grocery shop? Um, (laughs) Well, I live in a small town. Um, I have friends, my family. Um, sometimes I take cabs. I mean, it's a pain in the butt. It's a pain and I'm working on getting over my fear. Um, but it's a, a legitimate fear because it's not something that's, but I'm trying. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm doing the exposure therapy of continuing to take the lessons. Ideally, what I want to do is just pass the test. Like if I can just pass the test, I don't want to do anything, you know, ambitious with my wheels. I just want to be able to toddle around town. So I'm hoping that I can. And it all comes down to when the dude's in the car with you, you know. Um, so I'm just trying to get to this place where. When the dude's in the car with me, I can prove my very basic skills. And then, um, you know, like I said, I just want to toddle around town. Yeah. Just got to toddle. Yeah. You'd mm-hmm. be the best driver. You'd be the best driver on the road. You'll be so defensive. You'll be terrified. <laughs> well, I drive like an old person. Yeah. You know? But hopefully with like better reflexes. So uh, do you have any other phobias? Because that's like a phobia, right? You're, it's like a phobic. I guess of, it is. Do you have other? It's not. It's not one I get a lot of sympathy for because people will just be like, you know, like, what is your problem? People don't have a lot of patience with uh, like, you know, phobias that aren't like leaving your hands bloody from washing them all the time. Um, Well, no, but I'm actually sympathetic because I think about this myself. Like people are terrified of sharks. They don't like, you know, the dark. They have, you know, there's all these common sort of things that people are terrified of. Um, but you know, and especially with re- respect to mortality, you know, it's like, oh my God, I don't want to swim in the ocean. Something's going to eat me. Well, statistically, that's incredibly unlikely. Flying, it's incredibly unlikely. 
Um, mm. But then you get into a car, like right. you, you're basically, like you say, you're in this like steel box or fiberglass box. It's going like 75 miles an hour and you're three feet away from other fiberglass boxes traveling. It's, you know, it's, it's, right. it's crazy. There is an element of it that's completely nuts. It absolutely is. And I just don't. And it makes me see like, I mean, talk about, I guess, trust issues or but it makes me see how much I don't trust other people to do what they're supposed to do. You know, and that's the big thing. Like there's this huge leap of faith with driving that you're going to trust other people to do what they're supposed to do. Um, So I'm not there yet, but I'm working on it. It will be such a victory when I when I get my license, it will be like such an absolute victory. Do you trust me? Do you feel like a sense of comfort with me? I do. You yeah. Th- you think I I'm, think you're very easy to talk to. I'm podcasting in the way that you would expect me to podcast. <laughs> I think you have a great voice too. Really? Yeah. You have, I think you have a very good voice, a good, a good voice for podcasting. You do. Well, I appreciate that. Um, so, okay. So do you have any other fears like of, of a similar intensity, like to the, to the, your fear of driving? I don't think so. I mean, I think it would just, you know, what if I did, it would come like right to the forefront of my mind. Um, no, no, that's the only one, but it's a, a big one. It's a quite burdensome one. All right. So what, what else? We've got uh, Andy Warhol also factors into the book. Um, Mork yes. and Mindy. Like, give me some context. What's up with well, Mork? Those were- well, with Mark and Minnie, like, my, my son is really good with his, like, taste in things, which impresses me. I hope it comes from my DNA. But um, he has, like, a lot of interest in old TV shows. Like, well, I can't think of him as old. I mean, the 80, well, Alf, like, he loves Alf, and I can't think of Alf as old, but I guess it is. Um, and Mark and Mindy and uh, Laverne and Shirley. And so I was watching, I'd be watching them with him. And, you know... <laughs> The storylines are, I mean, they would never happen nowadays. Like, uh, is it, yeah, there's this episode of Mork and Minnie, and I don't write about it in the essay, where, how does, how does it happen? Like, the Fonz from Happy Days, because they would do this, the shows would cross over, um, like, attempts to hook up Mork with Laverne from Laverne and Shirley, and there's this episode where, like, Mort totally tries to rape her. Like, he, he chases her around the house and up the stairs. And it's, like, played as this big joke, which it was then. I mean, things like that weren't, you know, as taboo. So I'm watching these shows, and, you know, this is the stuff that I grew up on. I mean, in a family that didn't really talk about sex, that's where I was getting my ideas for the way things worked. More great. <laughs> right. And in that essay where Mark and Mindy and, Al- and Al- Axel Rose, too, come up is about this idea of um, of male aggression, a male like sexual aggression, more like catcalls and things like that. Um, you know, for a period of time, almost like coveting them. And, you know, thinking of them as like compliments, as like, as like these great displays of their desire for me. Um, and I trace it back to, to shows where you would see that all the time, where women were constantly treated like meat. Um, 
I mean, in so many of those shows from the 80s, um, like Charlie's Angels and um, all those really like gratuitous, beautiful women, you know, in satin pantsuits and all of that, um, where they're just constantly treated like meat. I saw that through my juvenile mind. I saw that as like male demonstrations of just desire. I thought that's the way desire looks for a long time. What does it so, actually what does it actually look like? Well, there's ways to do it that don't have to be so um, dehumanizing, I think. You know, when you're walking down the street and you know, hey baby, you know, I'd hit that. I mean, that's reducing you to, you know, a a hole. Um, But, you know, looking back, I saw how, how much, and as I write in the essay, there were times when I lived in New York where I would just go out at night because I wanted men to yell at me. Like, I wanted (laughs) them to say horrible things to me and it would you know if it didn't happen sometimes I would feel bad about myself well I gotta say like as a man I used to live in West Hollywood and I I was just telling my wife this like I used to get whistled at all the time in my neighborhood and I know it's different for guys but I I got to the point where I liked it I was like wow they think I'm they think I they think I got it (laughs) it's too bad I don't you know swing that way I'd, I'd be killing it yeah, maybe because women don't do that so often, yeah. you know? But, I mean, no, it was, um, it was men who were whistling at me. I, I, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would love to have women whistle. W- women never whistle at me, but uh, I don't know. I guess for guys, like, guys would love it if women whistled at them. Right. I, th- I think. Well, John Ricci in City of Night writes about L.A., like, in the 50s and 60s, and, you know, when it was just this, you know, there were streets that were just total, you know, it was like, you know, strips of male hustlers and just, you know, how, how they would, you know, meet Johns and, you know, how gays would communicate with each other. And, you know, it's just this whole total subculture with, um, you know, their ways of communication and dressing. And, and it's really fascinating to imagine LA during that period or even New York with, you know, the Ramon song 53rd and 3rd, which is about male hustling, 53rd and 3rd, standing on the street. You know, <laughs> he says, I'm tired of turning tricks. You know, um, I don't know. I've always really been interested in, um, in especially, um, you know, male hustling and, and gay male hustling. That's fascinating. And like, then, like, and, it's, it's totally fascinating because the, these were, you know, these people who were so, um, discriminated against criminalized um and you know the subcultures they grew out of it and how these people found empowerment and they you know set up their own clubs and you know or just even the idea um i had to i just did a list for electric literature of books um about like the demimonde yeah um and one of them that i mentioned is um alvin baltrop wrote this book called the peers and in New York in the 70s, the West Side Piers, where, you know, used to be a big shipping area, where, you know, for goods being brought into New York on ships. But by that, by, by that time, um, the piers were totally dilapidated. Danger. It was, like, dangerous 
to go um, down there. You know, you could be smashed by a beam, but <clears throat> it became this huge gay cruising cruising ground. And also, um, you know, a big uh, a big art scene um, uh, too. Um, like David Wanarovitz, who I love, um, you know, would go down there and spray paint and paint on the walls. So there was, it was like Roman. I mean, it was un- unbelievable. Um, you know the art that was there, and and but amongst amongst the ruins, um, men would go down there and have sex. And Alvin Baltrop was there at the time and took all these photographs that are just incredible. These absolutely incredible photographs. I feel I feel like you you have a book. I feel like you have a book in you about this. Of this world that's totally gone. Yeah. There's another man, Larry Fink. Um, and also, but it's so many of those, so many of those men in, in that history, um, was as lost to AIDS, you know? Yeah. Well, now that you look at, you look at some of those pictures and it's, it's almost creepy because you know, what's coming for some of these people. And you also see in some of the artwork and this is the early eighties, um, people putting up warnings about AIDS. I mean, there was real resistance from that community and I don't blame them, um, you know, they were very distrustful about, um, you know, the early uh, medical warnings about AIDS. I mean, they thought it was, you know, gay discrimination. Um, but, uh, you know, you see just as these very early warnings, people trying to, you know, give give each other, uh, you know, a, a heads up that, um, you know, they're, 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 there's a disease out there and it can kill you. Well, but people were very distrustful of believing that did you ever see that documentary what was it called like how to beat a plague or how to yeah how to survive a plague oh my god that yeah. that that really i mean because i took i actually took a class my freshman year of college and it was all about the aids epidemic and we read uh and the band played on that was like one of the textbooks and Very so chill. yeah so i think i had um more of the history than most of my peers at, um you know just from from that but when i saw how to survive a plague that brought it home for me in a way that uh, nothing else ever has in terms of just like the scale of the tragedy and how valiant like the people were. Oh, my God. Just heroic. Yeah. Like, I mean, what it took for for people to get the medicine that they needed to remove some of the stigma, you know, like all that they had to go through. Um, I don't know. I recommend that movie to anybody. Yeah, no, it's great. Peter Staley, who's a, a, is um, in that movie a lot. I follow him on Facebook. And he's very, um, you know, uh, coming out of, of, of that world of like AIDS activism and stuff. AIDS activists, I think, have a lot of advice to give when it comes to dealing with Donald Trump. I mean, you know, it's all those with Donald Trump, what he's trying to bring forward, you know, that that right right wing, um, you know, very discrimination friendly, um, you know, uh it's it's like a throwback to Ronald Reagan in the eighties in in some ways, and they were very schooled with um, you know, fighting fighting that. Yeah, how to uh, or, how to organize, ideology. how to organize and how to resist effectively. Right. Well, listen, Fiona, it's yeah. it's been uh, it's been great talking with you. I, I congratulate you on your new collection of uh, essays, and I wish you the very best on whatever comes next. Thank you. It was nice talking to you too. All right, everybody, there you go. That is Fiona Helmsley. Her essay collection is called Girls Going Old, available from We Heard You Like Books. You can find her online at FionaHelmsley.com. 
She's not on social media. I don't think she is, unless she turned her Facebook page back on. Fiona Helmsley, Girls Gone Old. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app, the Other People app. It's official. The official app. It's free. Get it wherever you get your apps. Put it on your device. Listen to the program via the application. If you would like to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Tell me a story. Offer your thoughts. Share. If you'd like to uh, drop a couple, of, uh, a couple of dollars in the hat, other PPL, or no, what is it? Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. I feel warm. I feel tired. Warm and tired. I'm looking at a globe. There's a globe on my desk. Looking at South America, Peru. I've never been to South America. Never have. Never been to Central America. I guess unless Mexico. Is Mexico Central America? Am I crazy? Mexico's North America, right? Holy shit. Why have I not been to Costa Rica? Why have I not been to Argentina? Why have I not been to Chile? Why have I not been to Brazil? Peru? Bolivia? Ecuador? Colombia? All the places I've never been, all the places I will never probably go. Travel the earth. Be a nomad. There are people that do that. I was reading about that this week. Some sort of essay online about people who live nomadically. Digital nomads. I guess that's a thing now. The thing about things, like any kind of trend especially like in real estate or location where like a place is really cool. It's cheap, but it's beautiful. There's great people. By the time you're reading about it, it's over. The time to be in those places is when nobody's writing about it. Nobody knows about it. And it goes away quickly. It's like San Francisco, the summer of love. By the time the summer of love happened, San Francisco was over. The scene was dead. It was a disgusting tourist trap. <laughs> What am I talking about? I have no idea. Like I'm just filling the void with sound. Letting inspiration do its thing. The interior of my mind externalized, moment to moment, with no real thought. What is that, static? Did I just hear static? <laughs>